All right, here we go again on our uh, stories about uh, life in the Eastern Furnace Village in the uh, 1940s and 50s. Uh, and I want to start by thanking folks who have been complimenting this series. <laughs> At least some of you are enjoying these. And uh, this week's uh, segment is called uh, War Years Automobiles. <laughs> and it goes like this. What with no manufacturing of cars during the war years of 1943, 44, and 45, those vehicles that remained on the road became pretty beat up. Add to the shortage of gas with people putting a little kerosene into the gas tank to stretch mileage, the fact that parts for repairs were scarce, uh, led to some pretty uh, junky vehicles. There were frequent breakdowns, and flat tires were common. Some people kept an extra spare tire or two in the trunk to meet the need. I did. Autos of the 1930s vintage were quite common on the roads in the late 1940s, as the big three had changed production from autos to war tanks, planes, and other heavy military equipment. Just about everyone changed his own flat tires. One could buy new tires, of course, but Furnace Village people mostly bought retreads. These were tires on which a new layer of rubber with tread was fused to an old tire that had not been worn through to the canvas. My father sold used tires, but always ran his own tires until canvas showed. That way, he got the most value from each tire. At least in his mind, he did. All tires had inner tubes that we repaired ourselves. A patching kit was widely available, including at a Roden's Sunoco station at the Five Corners. The patching kit had a scraper within its cap. After scraping, glue was applied. Many of us believed that putting a lighted match to the glue gave it great adherence. Sort of a vulcanizing effect. Some people put their cars on blocks for the winter. Driving on poorly plowed streets with rear-wheel drive cars that handled badly in tough conditions made that a good move for those who could get by without their vehicles in the off-season. There was quite a bit of carpooling. Few households had two automobiles. In snowy conditions, one might put snow chains on his tires. These were a chore to attach. You lay the chains out in front of each rear tire and drove forward onto them. Pull the chains up and over the tire and connect them from side to side with special clasps. These clasps broke often and hay baling wire was the substitute. It seems that one or two of these chains would come undone from one side and allow that chain to whack against the inside of the fender with a deafening clack, clack, clack sound. You could hear one so afflicted car coming down the road from a half mile away. The early snow tires were coming into vogue at this time. The first of them featured nail-like studs that gave pretty good traction, but chewed up the asphalt roads something fierce. They were banned several years after introduction. My dad had a used car dealer's license right after the war, and we all had all sorts of junkers in our backyard, which extended over eight acres. 
The truth is, the woods behind our house at 455 Foundry Street was a regular junkyard. Dad sold cars, and the parts to cars, no permit was needed, of course. So there was a steady stream of men coming to the house for a starter for a 1937 Studebaker, or what have you. No need for a bank. Dad served as his own bank. He would sell an old beater for maybe 200 dollars and then sell it for 300 dollars. You know, you got to multiply these numbers by 10 or 15 to get an idea of today's uh, dollar value. And he'd get a little interest on his loan to boot. When he died at age 47, he had amassed a fortune good enough to see my mother through to age 92, although she always held a job after his death. Collections on the car loans was a matter of the old man going from bar to bar on a Friday night, which was pay night, of course, getting no worse for the wear, picking up $10 here and 20 there on the loans. He kept his records on scraps of paper carried in his left hip pocket. Of course, he'd buy a dimey beer for the car buyer and have one for himself. He was a popular guy, but the beer eventually did him in. He loved to flip coins for a dollar, at least $10 in today's money. If one does that for the same sum over a lifetime, one would theoretically never make or lose money. But since my dad usually had more money in his uh, pocket than his fellow flipper, he would talk him into doubling up until Dad had won. Whatever his plan, he seemed to make good sums from his gambling. Old cars came into our yard regularly. Once they had been stripped of parts, my father would call the scrap man and cash in on the metal. Some of the clunkers were still drivable. I bought my first car from him for uh, $10, about 150 bucks in today's money, <laughs> at age 12. It was a 1936 Graham four-door. I took off the fenders, painted it bright red with house paint, and put a number over the door and on the side of the old junker. I bought an Army helmet at the Sam Cohen Army and Navy store in Brockton, painted that white, put my number on it, and raced the old girl around Frank Gracie's back field. I had to make my way up through the backwoods to get to the field, which was a torturous dirt path over boulders and stumps. I'd land on a stone or a stump, get the jack out and lift the vehicle enough to put planks, etc., under the wheels, go forward a few feet, hit the next snag, and so it went until I made it to the field. I thought I was a cat's meow. My mother was always fearful we'd land a, uh, a car on us while we were under it with only the bumper jack holding up the old crate. Somehow we lived through it. Brother Bud bought his first beater the next year. He was only 11 years of age. We would race one another around the field. Only a few laps would do. One of the two cars in, and we would stop to make repairs. Bud was always a better mechanic than I, but we kept a series of those old pieces of junk running for about three years until I could buy my first car, a 1939 Ford Coupe, at age 15 and a half. But that's a story for another day. <laughs>